1: Welcome back, SPC Nation. Before we get into today's episode of the Second Print Comics Podcast, I gotta stop ya for one second. And tell you to head over to our brand new sponsor's website. The website is foxandsons.com, F-O-X, the letter N, -N S-O-N-S.com. What do they do? They make fantastic coffee beans, and they deliver them right to your door. He doesn't make the beans, let's be honest. He sources them from amazing, incredible sources, but he gets them right to your door, I'll tell you that. And they're fantastic. I get these two-pound bags delivered to my house every single month. And right now, Stephen is offering a special deal, $4 off any subscription to these two-pound bags, or you can use a little SBC discount. For any order over $25, you'll get a 15% discount by using discount code SECONDPRINTPOD. You gotta spell it all out, that second print pod, to get yourself 15% off your order over at foxandsons.com. Check it out.
2: Ladies and gentlemen, you are
1: now entering the second Big Comics podcast, starring
3: Mark Lear and Renzo Martinez.
2: What happens when you go ahead and combine Ocean's Eleven, the Italian job, a little bit of Rick and Morty, and the rogues? from the dastardly side of the dc universe that's right folks we are covering a dc black label limited series the rogues brought to you by today's kirby club sponsor over at the second brick comics patreon our trusted friend eric in today's show but before we go ahead and do that it would not be a full-on comic review episode without the miraculous marvelous mr mark claire mark how goes it
1: it goes well, Remzo. Did you write that intro? It felt it felt uh, smooth. Or are you, are you, you that know, naturally gifted?
2: You just, just got to <laughs> let the soul breathe sometimes. And it's amazing what comes out. Have I been called the Da Vinci of podcasting? No.
1: But if someone said that to me, that would be nice. Well, while today's episode is produced and really our whole show is essentially sponsored by our patrons and uh, our highest paid patrons, being the kirby club and well there there is one higher jeffrey is actually even higher above that but it's in the our, pimp class our kirby club producers get to uh produce an episode of the show once every few months and that's what we're gonna do here today but we also have a great sponsor of this episode this month and that is the fantastic fox and sons coffee which you can find at foxandsons.com. i have a fresh bag you know why because it just got delivered to my house. Because I have a monthly subscription. This is the way to go. Once you've had your sample, once you've used your your discount code, Second Print Pod to get fifteen percent off a bag, any bag, just any order over twenty five bucks, you're gonna try it out just to make sure we're not bullshitting you. But once you have some of this coffee, you're gonna realize, oh my god, this is great stuff. I'm gonna buy some. Why? Because I want to support the Second Print Comics podcast. I love Mark and Remzo. They're great. Also, I've heard them talk about this guy Stephen Fox who runs this company. He's a good guy who's teaching his kids about entrepreneurship through uh, through this company. So there's just all sorts of warm and fuzzies around involved in this thing. And uh, if that wasn't enough, the coffee itself will make you feel warm and fuzzy. I... Prefer the Den Blend dark. I am a dark roast man, but I've also dabbled in the uh, the Brazilian Honey Prep there, the Tasmanian Pea Bear. I mean, there's a lot, there's a lot going on, Rem, so It's great. The to- the Brazilian Honey Prep. So we just went through our first bag
2: of the Den Blend. Uh, the Brazilian Honey Prep is probably my favorite. And I was a K Cup fiend for many, many oh, years. But when we started going ahead and getting our bags from Fox and Sons, we went ahead and got a French press. We went ahead and got a grinder. I thought, you know, this is too much work for coffee. No, it's not. It's, it's, not it's, work, a, it's not enough work. It's <laughs> not I enough work. It's not enough You should be working
1: work. harder for this.
2: And like I'm a I'm a creamer fiend too. So like usually people look at my coffee and clean. they're like, is it like is there any coffee in there? Um, these beans pack their own flavor and are an enjoyable experience in their own right. And since then, you know, I still will throw in a little half and half in there just out of habit. But I mean, I'm I'm totally off creamer at this point. It's just it's some delicious stuff.
1: You really don't need it cuz these these beans they they create such like smooth coffees that i i haven't really i've used a little bit. I use the monk fruit cuz i'm not eating the sugar. So, mm-hmm. a little bit of monk fruit and i'm good. No creamer needed. Yeah. Which is rare for coffee for me too.
2: Yeah, totally. So, Fox and Sons, that's F O X N S O N S dot com use code second print pod at checkout 15% you got to spell it all order. out
1: guys don't do that too In the letter and no you got to spell the word you can do it you're smart people you read comics second print pod 15 off your order you can't go wrong and if you do decide to get the subscription to the two pound bag every month guess what Stephen fox such a great guy he's giving you four bucks off right now boom can you beat that no, it's a can't. win-win all right well speaking of win-wins another win-win situation is Our highest level, I keep saying highest level, it feels like the highest level, technically not. Uh, Highest level is the Infinity Gauntlet, but our second highest level and almost as important uh, level of producer is the Kirby Club, where you get to become a producer of this podcast on occasion when we so allow it. And we are so allowing it today. So today I I now bring in our, uh, this month's Kirby Club level producer. He is, as I've mentioned before, the man who first got me into comics. Really, he's responsible for all this mess. You could say, Eric, what's up, buddy?
3: Hey, Mark. Hey, Renzo. How are you guys doing today?
2: We're doing fantastic. Eric, you went ahead and sent me these books, and you know that I have not only did been...
1: That is not quite true. He did something even more, even bigger than sending them to you. He physically handed them to you at my wedding in Las Vegas. Mark, we
3: were so drunk.
1: You don't even remember. You <laughs> no, don't even I know how they they you know. got the books. I don't know how I got them. I had,
3: I had to-, I had to... <laughs> We had such a good time at the wedding that I forgot to give the books to Remzo. Oh, so, so he did to, send
1: them. Okay, I,
3: I had to wrong. mail them to Remzo. All
1: right, well, I had them hand delivered to me. So. It, was around, did.
2: it was around like one in the morning, and I had like a three forty-five flight. So we had to run from Caesars to Hara's. We took a 30 minute nap and then my wife got like viciously ill from something she ate that day. So as we're about, like an hour and a half away from having to board our flight, I'm looking at her and I'm like, listen, I need to know if you can physically get on that plane. So we call Southwest and we're like, can we reschedule for later tomorrow? And the Southwest lady is like, we don't have any available flights for two days. So I'm looking at her. I'm like, you need to bring a bag and we need to go. So by the time I got back, it's like 9am here in Milwaukee. I'm finally laying down after one of the most chaotic travel experiences of my life. And then I turn over to my wife and I'm like, I feel like Eric was supposed to give me something and we (laughs) dashed, but I was also not very sober at the moment. So dash is more like hobbled across the strip to get to the airport. Fun times indeed. But these are um, four books that comprise the Rogues limited series from DC Black Label. I love DC Black Label ever since they brought it out in uh, late 2019, 2020. It has probably been... Uh, source for the best dc stories both in canon and non-canon and what i love about this is that this is an out of continuity story set in an alternate timeline 10 years from the current dc and what it gives us is just a classic heist story now reading it There were some predictable plot points, but what they do is they subvert that. So that way, as you're getting to get reacquainted with some of these characters that you may have seen through the comics, the cartoons, or even Legends of Tomorrow, they do some shit that even I was like, damn, they could get away with this only here. So why did you pick up the series? What'd you like about it? And... Yeah, you know, just just what what else are your thoughts? Because this is a prime example of what I'll consider an elseworld story done freaking right.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I I couldn't agree more with that that synopsis. This is absolutely done right. Um, so I picked this up. I saw it in a preview book um, that I just happened to pick up uh, one day when I was at the comic book store, um, thumbing through it, and I just came across Rogues, and the synopsis just sounded great. Um, I was like, this sounds like a book that I want to pick up. And then when I saw it on the shelf, I read issue one and I was like, I'm picking this whole thing up.
2: It's that freaking good. Now, when I read it uh, after you sent it to me, I went ahead and read the first issue and then I was like, Oh shoot, I've got some stuff to do. So I waited about a week and a half. And then when I read all of it, I was like, okay, I'm only going to read book two today and book three tomorrow and book four later. No, this story sucked me in. And It is it's just one of those things. And I know we weren't going to talk about the flash, but like for fuck's sake, DC don't spoil it for Eric. You created, you created the whole multi. I can't spoil anything
1: the internet already hasn't done
2: for humanity, but like you know, DC created the multi. Remzo cares
1: so little about spoilers that he intentionally spoils <laughs> movies for himself before he goes. To, this is real. He did it for I try and he I tried it for know what
2: to focus on for the people because I'm a man of the people, Mark. But like DC created, don't you
1: want to be surprised?
2: No, at all. You no. know,
1: no. <laughs> That's so it's supposed to be a generational thing
2: dc created the trope of multiverses they went ahead and told you how you can get really crazy outlandish of stories but this is an example of a grounded story that feels like it could fit in with the current continuity and it's just creative and when you let writers and artists just be creative just tell good stories uh stuff like this is just so refreshing so mark before we go ahead and get into it what do you know about the rogues? Were you much of a flash comic reader? And have these villains ever stood out to you as anything more than a collective of B listers and C listers?
1: Sure. Yeah. Well, um, after I got into DC Comics, uh, I stumbled upon Mark Wade's Flash. So he was kind of like my '90s, uh, one of my '90s, like DC jams was that Mark Wade Flash. And then when I, after my little dark period, after I took a little break from comics and came back in, uh, I yeah, you need I started- theme music whenever you say dark period. Like. Um, yeah, well, I started kind of looking into like, what were some of the best runs of the last, you know, 10, 15 years. And of course that led me to Jeff Johns and went through his entire flash run, including both his Wally West run and then into his Barry Allen run. So I think between, between my original, you know, my, my teenage fanhood and my adult fanhood, I've, I've read a pretty damn good amount of flash. So I do have an affinity, a general affinity for the rogues characters.
2: Now, before we go ahead and get in, let me go ahead and give you guys a quick synopsis of what we're walking into. And because we're covering all four of these books, which are about, you know, 40 plus pages each, we'll be kind of condensing it. But at the end, we'll be discussing a little bit more of the artwork and maybe some things I may have glossed over. So this,
1: huh? You know what we should do first? What should we do first? Mention who wrote it and who drew it. Oh, that would be smart, wouldn't it? Because I care. I care about the work that goes in. Remzo doesn't care who writes or draws this stuff. This is written by Joshua Williamson, who is at the time was. Uh, I, I'm guessing. I don't know what what year was. What was this about ten years ago?
3: No, what this was? is this is in 2022.
1: Oh my god! Oh, this is that. Reason? This is like this is wow. hot. Okay, this is super hot. So he was already kind of the man at DC, I guess, when, the, when this came out. But even more so, I think even a year later, uh, Joshua Williamson has become the new, here's the guy we just give all our books to, so pretty much. He, the only one he hasn't gotten a hold of yet is, uh, is Batman, but he's been given the Superman title. He was on Flash for a while. He's pretty much bounced around to all the top titles of DC. And I, I would say he's pretty much seen as DC's steady hand at this point. And the art by someone I'd never heard of before, who goes by one name. Leo Max. It's one word. That's a cool name to have. It's a pretty cool name, and he's got pretty cool art. That's all. I just wanted the people to know. Now, well, fuck the ed- fuck the inkers, fuck the letterers, whatever. We obviously don't care about them. They're subhuman. But we yeah. got to mention the writer and art. They're speaker.
2: they're happy to just be involved in this, right? uh rogues is set in an alternate future the team has disbanded and the government has pardoned them in exchange for stopping their criminal activities each of the former rogues is carefully monitored and has their own job some of them have a good life others just work to live but in these four issues the team will assemble once again after a 10-year hiatus before we get going my initial thoughts on the rogues i thought they were dumb I thought that they were just a bunch of C-listers. They were like the Sinister Six for the Flash, except they were never successful, and I could never really take them seriously. But it hasn't been too long that they've had their own resurgence. I want to say it was around the point where Flashpoint was being published and the New 52 was coming out, we began to actually see DC take the rogues seriously. We're dealing with people that have real character development. We're dealing with people that have real powers, and they're... You know, they're cast as underdogs in a world of, you know, your Brainiacs and your Lex Luthers and your Jokers. So, automatically going into this, my expectations for the level of story we were getting, I knew there was potential, but they were low. Most of my assumptions of them came from the Justice League Unlimited television series, where they had a couple of cool rogues episodes, but not enough to really change my perspective. Book one is going to change my perspective. So, and the,
1: the thing about the rogues, too, is that they're generally like seen as and are, they're pretty much like a street level villain team that individually, none of them seem all that impressive. Uh, but somehow, they always manage to give the Flash, who has obviously very high levels of superpowers, they always manage to give him just enough fits to make it interesting. And I think the real key with the rogues is let's be honest, none of them are necessarily all that interesting on their own, uh, but put them together. Uh, they do form this sort of interesting cast of characters that has served as, as you know, some of the lead foils to, to, you know, one of DC's cop top heroes, the flash over the years. Exactly. And on TV,
2: they've been pretty cool. The first couple seasons of flash where you got to see uh, the, the formation of the rogues was pretty cool. So uh, pages one through five, because this is definitely a book where it's show. Don't tell you gotta give them out of dialogue but you've got these big black label sized pages. They really let the artwork kind of carry things. Condiment King is a bartender at the villains bar in central city. It's a secret hideout where all the B list and C list villains, uh, from the DC universe, typically from central city, go ahead and hang out when they're not going out and, you know, causing a ruckus and getting beat up by the flash. Uh, he's consoling ape. Who's a psychic ape who at this point, I think had lost his his powers and stuff. Ape is down on his luck. He's not doing well. He can't keep a job down. Why? Because he's a giant freaking gorilla or an ape. Are gorillas and apes the same thing? Apes
1: are—they are the same thing. Yeah. <laughs> I can break down the whole time. I'm allergic ape, to apes. The, I, I'm, I'm, I'm allergic. To the, allergic to the word ape. Allergic to the word. Right, is it? Is that pretty
2: pretty what his name early. is? His name's ape. His name's ape. Well, he has his name his is name's Sam. His name is Sam, but his like villain name is ape. So. Uh, and we'll just call him Sam for this purpose because I've always wanted to name a ape Sam. It's like naming a dog
1: Brian. There's just I'll tell you what like I it. am. I am a sucker for anthropomorphous anthropomorph. You know what I'm trying Anthropomorphic. to Anthropomorphic. Right? Anthropomorphic characters in in anything in comics, especially though. So I'm a big detective chimp fan who is referenced in this scene. And uh, yeah, I like Gil- Gorilla Garad as a villain. Love it all.
2: Yeah. So uh, another B-list villain in the crowd of B-list DC bad guys confuses him for Gorilla Grodd, comes over like, hey, Grodd, how you doing? And Sam is just ignoring him. He's ignoring him until he gets infuriated by the fact that this random villain who then realizes that he's not Gorilla Grodd starts talking to him, slapping on the back. And he's just like, hey, man, weren't you dating that like giant blonde chick, Giganta? Uh, you know, she's with, uh, you know, Detective Chip now, and that just sets him off, especially when he's like, you know, she, you know, that's obviously proof she has a type. So Sam is just beating the shit out of this guy, while others like, um, you know, Silver Banshee and a whole bunch of folks that I, I had to Google who some of them were, are just like rooting and enjoying watching the fight. Meanwhile, the camera, and by that, I mean the panel, the camera pans. It's the only way I really know how to describe the camera pans over to the booth where the rogues are sitting. And you see them all there. And Who's right in the middle? Leonard Snart, Captain Cold. Um, Snart is being spoken to by Mirror Master. They're just talking some, you know, basic bad guy bullshit. But something's just off with him. He's looking like he's not amused by what's going on. He seems distant. And, you know, you could tell that Captain Cold is thinking something. Now, just from the first five pages, I like the rendering. I like how they're setting things up. Um, I always like a little bit of humor for my villains, especially when they're just kind of hanging around each other. It just kind of shows you, like, this is a bar for the losers. You don't see Catwoman there. You don't see, um, you know, Black Adam there. These are the guys that the other villains hire when they need some cannon fodder. So, Eric, did you know who Condiment King was? Because No. I didn't.
1: <laughs> oh, you know, you guys don't know Condiment King. No, he, I, I saw was.
2: him. I think I saw him. Now one of Tom I'm King's
1: not, favorites, by the way. Was he? Was he there of Kite Man? You know, he's one of the, yeah, he's, he's kind of in that category of ridiculous villains that people like Tom King like to like bring into a story and then do something, you know, smart and funny with it so they can like say, act like, you know, show us what great comics fans they are while overpushing a character that doesn't serve. I like Condiment King in roles like this, where he just appears somewhere. I'm really, but like what Tom King did with Kite Man, for example, with giving him a two issue story arc in the middle of a bigger story. Man, I feel like this is deja vu. I did this rant three years ago. So I'll spare you guys right now. I feel like. Didn't come here to talk about Tom King.
2: I feel like at this point, James Gunn might give Condiment King his own movie. But
1: what do I know? Uh,
2: Pages 6 through 19, current times... Shoots us in 10 years in the future. So now this is 10 years from where the book went ahead and started us off. Leonard Snart is retired from supervillainy and works a factory job. Now he looks old. He looks like he's in his Walter White stage. Like this is him just drained of all his enthusiasm. He does not look like a supervillain. He looks stage like a guy.
1: five cancer. Walter White. Not Yeah, not, not, he, not he, he looks like a, he
2: looks like the angry guy you would see at the grocery store at the middle of the day. You're like, what do you do? What are you doing here? Like, what's going on? man. Uh, Meanwhile, as he's getting ready for work, he's pestered by his parole officer. And basically what he needs to prove is that he's not getting back involved in his old supervillain chicanery. So he goes to work, uh, finishes his whole day, and then his bosses bring him in and actually promote him to floor manager. And he's actually excited. He's actually like, wow, I've done something good. But as he's walking out, he hears them make fun of him as the diversity hire, since they only went ahead and hired him because he's a former felon. So we that is, have
1: we got to have at least, you know, 1% uh, super, former supervillains on our roster. Right. The ESG, ESG scores right. must be like moving so high up at that point. <laughs> now you have to have a, every board has to have one lesbian, uh, one trans activist, and uh, and one ex supervillain. That's how it works long in long.
2: the DC universe, I mean, folks. I mean, we we don't make go. up the rules. Um, so he's just mad. He feels lost in the world working a nine to five, as it seems that his days of being a rogue are behind him. He goes home and in a rage, destroys his entire place. And who, who who could blame him? He's pissed. His life is pretty trash. People could say it's his fault for what he did in the past. But this this kind of blows, though, I would argue that prison would blow more. And that's probably where he deserves to be. Uh, but as he goes ahead and looks around, at, you know, the mess that he made, he begins gathering a whole bunch of objects from around his place and constructing some gadgets he's probably not allowed to have or else he'll violate his parole. Eric, there's a lot of scenes of him just taking the bus in a crowd working. I was watching this, and I'm like, this is a good example of them putting you where Leonard is, which is mundane, average, normal. And I liked it. They didn't have to tell me what happened. The the story showed it. And the artwork in these giant size black label pages just really carries you through. The panel work is awesome. What'd you think of our introduction to old man snart?
3: Yeah, I I really liked it. The, as you mentioned, the art really carries um, this story throughout. um, And so is the dialogue. These are hefty books um, and, you know, both, both really carry the story. Um, And for an introduction, you know, it's, what this storyline does really well is it kind of builds the characters as they go along and it kind of makes you care about him. Um, and in this case, it just really shows you how far Snart has fallen from his supervillainy villainy days, um, you know, to working in the factory.
1: But, and also this, seeing Snart like this kind of just going around on the bus, being a sort of an everyman, uh, in really going about life in what seems like a mild mannered way. I think this really serves to set up what's going to come with him later.
2: Especially as we begin to now question if this is where Captain Cold ended up, where are the rest of the rogues? Pages 20 through 25, Leonard goes to see his sister, Lisa, the former supervillain, the golden glider, his sister. So what has happened? Whenever
1: I read this has been happening so much lately, whenever I read something modern, for some reason, it mirrors something I'm reading in, from twenty or thirty years ago, because I'm currently going back through um, uh, uh, Jeff Johns' Mark uh, Jeff Johns' Wally West flash run, and uh, they're also battling Mirror Master and, and Golden Glider in that one too. So yeah. well, the, the more
2: Twilight, things change, you're in the Twilight Zone. You're in the mirrorverse
1: of comics. Seems Mark. like
3: it. Golden Golden Glider is the one character I had to look up. I had no idea who this. Who's yeah. drilling? Was. Who's
1: drilling and vacuuming on our on our live show? Uh, the people
2: outside who are washing my garage. Wonderful. All right, move on. Yeah, they chose the great time. Um, So Leonard goes to see his sister, Lisa, the former supervillain, the golden glider, who has now become a social worker of all things, who helps the less fortunate in central city. Leonard bothers her as she has just checked two minors who have been abandoned by their parents in the temporary living conditions. And she attempts to get away from him since she fears her brother is going to say or do something to make her dwell on their past as criminals. But as she's trying to make things better for herself, she's drawn by the fact that Leonard has a plan for one more big score. I think that this is probably the biggest flip because to go from Superville and robbing banks to now being a social worker, one, she must have lied on that background check. Or two, Central City must really not have cared about that background check.
1: Um, it's the diversity hires, man. It affects the social workers, too.
2: Well... I thought this was a good contrast because if he's kind of like, you know, chaotic neutral in the sense working a factory job where he's now the floor manager, she's got more chaotic good because she's actively trying to make things right compared to the wrong that she did. And she seems, while Leonard definitely seems to miss it she seems to want to get away from it completely. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. He seems just bored with life and doing and going through it in a mundane way, because that's just where he is now. Whereas she almost seems like she's trying to maybe perhaps make up for her past wrongdoing. Yeah. So pages 26 through 28, the trickster who was, uh, are these the real page numbers or the Remzo? Like these are the real page numbers. Damn it. (laughs) I never know. I count. (laughs) I count. Remember that time you renumbered everything in your head and then went by that number.
2: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Do you know who the trickster was portrayed by in both the current Flash TV series and the 1990s one? Mark Hamill. Mark Hamill. I always thought it was funny that he played the voice of the Joker and ended up playing the trickster in live action. I've always liked the trickster. Well, the trickster has become a stand up comedian. He gives off very, very eerie Jeff Dunham vibes, if you're if you're asking me. But uh, he appears to be mentally sane, which if you're uh, a millennial who grew up in the Justice League Unlimited series, you knew that the trickster had some really severe mental illness Uh, here. He appears to be perfectly fine. Leonard meets up with him after one of his shows, which is completely sold out. People want to get his autograph and everything. And in his uh, changing room, he brings up this idea for a big money. We we're talking a big score, but he needs the trickster who is really enjoying his new life and actually declines his offer. So we've gone from chaotic neutral Leonard to chaotic good golden glider. Trickster seems to really want nothing to do with this shit. He's actually doing pretty well for himself. Eric, did you expect this from probably, as some would consider, the craziest member of the rogues?
3: Um, I, I didn't but I didn't know what to expect kind of going into these books. Um, You know, I'm not overly familiar with, with the rogues. Um, Trickster just comes across as kind of a creepy washed up music, uh, magician to me.
2: Mark, as you were reading his dialogue, did you think of it in Mark Hamill's voice?
1: No, because I totally forgot about that. You mentioned it, (laughs) even though I was, even though it's so quick to, uh, so quick to answer. Uh, Now what struck me is that he just seems like, He seems way younger because he's like the son of the original trickster. Is that right? He seems so much younger than snart. So he seems almost like he doesn't even really fit in with this crew, uh, but that kind of fits like his personality with the whole thing too. Yeah. And now
2: we're going to go ahead and grab the last of the rogues. Leonard and Lisa go to recruit bronze tiger. One of the fiercest martial artists. Who's also known as a, as more prominent member of the suicide squad. It's one of the most dangerous hand-to-hand fighters in the DC universe. He appears to be teaching a self-defense class in the park. And uh, Lisa is able to quickly convince him that, you know, they should probably work together once again. We'll discover why him and Lisa are able to get along so well later. From there, Lisa goes to her. Let's just say sp- I think she's taken his self-defense bound ch- class. Bound bound. She took the grappling all the way down. Bound ch- bound bound. Uh, Lisa goes to recruit the, s- the telepath Magenta who's using medication to control her powers and is dealing with financial issues paying for them. Leonard goes to find Heatwave, his old friend Mick, who is pretty easily sold. He just wants something to do, and he seems to have not really abandoned his super villainy ways. So you, what I like about this is you get to see everyone has not adjusted the same way, some better than others, Trickster, Bronze Tiger, Golden Glider. Some are just... You know, complacent with it and just want to go back to their villainous ways, like, um, like you know, Captain Cold. And then you've got others like Magenta and Mick, who are just struggling. Mick can't not be a supervillain, and Magenta is struggling to keep her shit together, and she's dealing with financial problems. So from there, the Rogues, including. Trickster, who shows up because he's bored. Why not? Meets to hear Leonard's plan, which is to break into Gorilla Grodd's headquarters in Gorilla City, steal his untraceable gold and sell it and become rich in the process. However, they need one more member of the rogues to go after one of their former teammates, not teammate depends on when you're reading them. Mirror Master, who is being held in a secure facility. Well from there the rogues break him out because they realize he's basically a vegetable and useless but they need him. So they go ahead and during this high-speed chase and shootout with these guards, they go ahead drag him out and after barely escaping, Leonard pulls out his newly modified freeze gun and fires off freezing all the all the guards and uh, security guys there are chasing them from there. They run away from mirror master. Who's becoming more cognizant now since he's out of the facility as they continue their plan to travel to gorilla city. So book one, my quick thoughts, if you didn't know who the rogues are, if you didn't know the premise, you know, it pretty darn fast. It's short. It's simple. It's the artwork that carries it. You know, these characters based off the struggles they're dealing with. And uh, the fact that they're going after a bigger villain, Gorilla Grodd, who has often been too good for them—you got my attention, Eric. What were your thoughts after finishing this first one?
3: You know, I really uh, enjoyed this book. I thought it was, uh, you know, a lot of fun. Good introduction to the to the team that's going forward, and a great plan.
1: Mark, well, I, what really hit me at the end here was you. I mean. You had seen these guys, even though you know they're the rogues, you know they've had this whole villainous history and villainous past, but you see them going through all their mundane roles, especially Leonard Snart. Even though he's organizing this thing, you've really only seen him as his factory worker, uh, like we said earlier, riding on the bus. You almost forget that there is villainy and evil here, so when he freezes the the like, the like cop and just knocks his fucking head off, suddenly it's, it's almost like the Breaking Bad moment for him where you – Where you realize, oh, this isn't just this is not just some mild mannered uh, guy about to plot a caper. This is a vicious motherfucker, and we're seeing him, even though he's old and downtrodden and almost fucking at the end of his rope. He's still a vicious motherfucker, and these are villains, and these are the motherfucking rogues. So I thought it was just a just a great way to end that first issue, and because I liked what I was reading before, it was interesting. But this, to me, is what took it from an interesting story to kicking it into high gear. It made me go, oh fuck yeah, let's see where this goes.
2: Especially with the fact that I just never really took Captain Cold seriously, I always thought that he was like a poor man's Mister Freeze. So for him to actually go these lengths, it's highly inferred that when he freezes you head to toe, that you're fucking dead. Um, you know, this is somebody who is just like on a suicide mission. And in case he wasn't
1: mad. sure, he'll just knock your head off. Yeah. That too.
2: That too. Well, on the to book too pages one through six director chase of the deo it's the uh, fbi equivalent for super villains and that type of stuff they're tipped off by one of their agents monitoring the rogues of the bust to grab mirror master and that the rogues have also left the country to travel to the caribbean where they will then travel to gorilla grod's headquarters now the deo and director chase don't know where they're going yet but they just know that they're planning something and that they can't be found from there, the tricksters used a bunch of their money to buy a boat, which is an absolute dump. He gets into a fight with Golden Glider because he basically calls this small African island. I'm sorry, the small Caribbean island a shithole. And uh, you could just basically tell that this is this is giving like a lot of like heart of darkness vibes, a lot of apocalypse now vibes. And, um, you know, it's, I was thinking
1: of Congo, the movie. Congo. Yes,
2: that's a good that's a good one. So basically it's it's just pages of them traveling. And it's really weird seeing this misfit crew travel all the way down. But when they finally get there, um, you know, you can definitely tell that this isn't Central City. You're dealing with some like severe poverty, uh, severe discrepancies, probably a dangerous place. And you begin to wonder, it's like, man, even the rogues look out of place here.
1: Yeah, uh, yeah, and that's kind of like part of the fun of this. Like, there's, it's like a caper movie. It's like an Ocean's Eleven, but just with these villainous sort of guys. Uh, but then they're going into this completely different environment, into the middle of the African jungle, into this gorilla city, and which we'll find out is a pretty interesting place in and of itself. But I just really love the the sort of contrast of the various elements here. These street level villains plotting a, a street level crime, only they're completely out of their element.
2: Absolutely. And then it gets only crazier from there. Pages seven through eight. Mirror Master is becoming a bit more cognizant. It seems like getting him out and, you know, having him around his old rogue ally seems to be reminding him. It's like, hey, like, what's going on? Where am I? As they're getting their uh, whole boat situation taken care of, uh, locals warn the rogues not to travel up the river since no one ever seems to return. At that point, they have to go ahead and get this boat, which is like trapped on land. This whole dump, and they have to go. How it they say, the like, water. well,
1: he said he did. He said he held up his end of the bargain and brought a boat. I'm like, yeah, well, that's to... the, have the to kind of thing. Water. This is the kind of thing that can that does can happen. I'm not gonna say does can happen on your travels through third world countries. You make a deal. A guy gets a thing. He brings it. He's like, well, I I did what I said. I brought the boat.
2: Like, well, and right. he
1: brought the boat, except it's not in the water. So
2: Magenta, who is offer medication, so that way she can go ahead and. use her telepathic powers to the fullest extent she goes ahead and lifts the landbound boat into the river but is it's obvious that her powers incredibly strain her they i mean they they absolutely strain her it's difficult for her to do this now more than ever and it's very obvious that's a little bit foreshadowing for later that she's struggling to you know be as capable as she was 10 years ago as a villain um pages nine through 16 is just a lot of banter between them as they're traveling down the river very you know congo apocalypse now what was that like a jungle cruise ish with the rock they're traveling up the seen river jungle cruise i saw jungle ramso cruise. has that. i saw Jungle right. Cruise. it's not Probably the worst like, movie. like the better than the flash i bet i did like jungle cruise better than the <laughs> flash <laughs> because i didn't have any expectations for jungle cruise and it has paul giamatti um they travel upriver, and while they're doing that, Leonard and Lisa are finally catching up. Leonard discusses one thing that went ahead and drifted the two siblings away from each other. It's the fact that he doesn't like Bronze Tiger. Specifically, the fact that he was never happy that Bronze Tiger and Lisa were a thing. So that was that was kind of funny. Um, Firefly and Trickster are almost butting heads and are quickly separated. They eventually arrive at Gorilla City. And when they get there, it just looks like The tribe from, you know, Planet of the Apes, when Caesar is like finally in charge of the apes and they've separated the humans from the apes and the apes that want to live with the humans and they're just like living in trees. It's not that sophisticated. It looks like a bit of a disappointment. So Leonard's just happy that they finally got there. But everyone is just like, dude, you are telling me that these these freaking monkeys have gold. This looks like a freaking disappointment from there. They realize that the big, rich city appears to basically be a guerrilla ghetto, as I mentioned. So what does this force them to do? It forces them to think, is this a trap? Well, who best to discover whether or not this is real or not than the trickster? The trickster realizes that the tree shanties are a front for the real guerrilla city, which is really an entire developed and sophisticated underground civilization in a massive cave network where Grodd is a brutal crime Lord slash dictator. We see the city is under his control and he runs it similar to the mafia wearing suits and everything. It's like the Godfather, but gorilla edition. And uh, as we begin to see him uh, with his capos, his officers, his politicians, I don't really know how the guerrilla government system works. I, sub- I just assume it's an organized crime syndicate, much like real government. Um, you know, He goes ahead and actually kills one of his officers who fucked up something just to reinstall loyalty and the expectations. A lot has happened there. Eric, from the tree huts to freaking guerrilla casinos – to them living like basic gorillas to in the suit with a family and a baby and a wife who looks like the chick that Mark Wahlberg made out with and Planet of the Apes in like 2000 or was it Matt Damon? I don't remember. They're basically the same. That's a lot in a couple of pages. What are your thoughts as we finally get to see the real gorilla city?
3: Yeah, it was, it was a whole lot. Um, you know, story moved along pretty quick, you know, from the time that they landed in uh, whatever country they landed into uh, up the river and to the real Guerrilla City. Um, you know, I thought the unveiling of Guerrilla City was really cool. That art is, um, you know, pretty stunning of that. I think it's a two-page spread in the book um, showing Guerrilla City, which is really cool. Um, and, you know, just looking how Guerrilla Groot is running it, you know, like you said, like a crime boss, he's more like Scarface. Um, you know, is how he runs things. Um, than a than a more mature godfather is running it. Um, but yeah, it's, it's really cool. The story is uh, really picked up. Mark, did
2: you expect gorilla city to appear like gorilla Vegas?
1: No, but it's very fitting, uh, to this entire story. Uh, and, and I really do love that the, there's a strong juxtaposition between the direction that these rogues have gone and and that Gorilla Grodd has gone now. Gorilla Grodd is a classic Flash villain as, as well, but as they reference later in the story, he never joined the Rogues. Uh, you know, Snart later will say it's because he was never invited. But really, in in really in comic hierarchy, Gorilla Grodd is, is sort of on a higher level than the Rogues. He was uh, often more of a, a, a member of the Injustice Society and the, or the League of uh, what's what's Lex Luthor's group. The Injustice League or the League of Supervillains or
2: the Legion of Doom.
1: Legion of Doom. That's the one I was looking for. Yes, he's on Doom. So he's kind of like more on the we're the guys that are going to battle the Justice League scale. So it's kind of fitting that, you know, he is the one kind of living more of the life. But I, I do really love the portrayal of him here as a less gorilla and more so crime boss that just happens to run a society of gorillas. Yeah. Pages
2: 34 through the end of book two the rogues finds the gorilla bank the gorilla city bank and it is heavily guarded and immediately they're like yeah we're not just stealing a couple treasure chests from some gorillas this is like stealing from Fort Knox meaning that their whole plan just went out the window so as the team considers abandoning the whole thing Cole convinces them that they've gone too far to give up you can really see him uh, especially through the artwork that like this is this is his Walter White I. In full Heisenberg mode. You don't go back after this. You got to freaking succeed the best you can. Uh, eventually, though the calmer, more sane voice comes in, Lisa, she convinces the team to try a new strategy after researching for a few days and figuring out whether or not this caper is still possible at all.
1: She's pretty much the mom of the group. She's the one kind of keeping them to track and keeping everybody
2: on point. Making sure it's not like a complete suicide run.
1: Packing the sandwiches and whatnot.
2: So Cold goes on his own to clear his mind when suddenly who do we find? He's been attacked by Sam, the ape who's now a Gorilla City and he's like dude what are you doing here snart what are you doing in gorilla city and it ends at that cliffhanger right there so now everyone is basically full circle now everyone from book one uh is finally here we're back to what the main point is which is they got to steal this gold but it's not going to be as simple as taking bananas from a monkey mark book two We finally really get to see what the big challenge is. How do you feel going from book one where it was the setup to here where we're confronted with the fact that not only is God way more sophisticated in his crime network, but that this bank is not going to be that simple to just walk into and steal the money.
1: Well, I love that Joshua Williamson draws from so many different thematic elements uh, and visual elements, then kind of pulls them all together here. Uh, What starts off as essentially, you know, some downtrodden criminals having one last caper. Um, Partway through this, it feels like we're in Indiana Jones. You know, they're uncovering secret passageways in the jungle. uh, And then suddenly you're confronted by Gorilla Grodd. uh, crime boss mafioso uh there's i mean really if you're you're looking at like you could almost say he's drawing from like four or five different films or different types of films uh but really blending them seamlessly together it never feels like we're jumping from uh from uh location to location that doesn't make sense it all makes sense in the context of, of the way he lays out the story but it really it all all these elements sort of come together to give this, what is essentially a small story of the this small group of characters and a you know, little minor caper to steal the, the gold of a gorilla. Uh, it really does give it a, a grandiose feel, especially with the setting of, of them sort of tra- traversing the jungle uh, entering gorilla city. It took what felt like a smaller story last issue and feels like a sort of a, a much, much bigger, more grandiose one in this one.
2: Eric, tell me if you agree. And I mean, this as a compliment, this is like a Rick and Morty episode.
3: This is a Rick and Morty episode that Rick wouldn't watch because <laughs> as he established in one of the episodes, he hates heist, <laughs> heist stories.
1: One of the best episodes, the heist. Story.
3: That is exactly right.
1: <laughs> you son of a bitch. I'm in. It, that's, that's the, that was the only thing missing from this was, was the, you son of a bitch. I'm in as, as he recruited the whole, whole, game yeah, out. I
3: know it had, it had the whole montage feel on print, which I thought was really cool. Um, also, in in this uh, last issue, they had they showed the brutality of Groot. So you still got to see that animalistic nature of Groot, despite the fact that he's this this you know sophisticated crime boss on the outside. He's You're like right.
1: Remzo. You just have certain words you like to pronounce totally weird for some reason, like gorilla Groot, for example. Is it not really rude?
3: I really, I thought it was Grod.
2: I also really? thought that linear. One-O. was linear.
3: So. Well, I mean, I can stand. I can stand corrected. I can. I can. I can. Uh, you know, evolve you and know,
1: change. comics is an interpretive medium. Be however you want.
3: Yes. Reading well, is all about the fun, isn't it? If two out of three people are saying, Groud, I'm going to change my change my There story. are no accidents. We'll put, put it only to a vote. Happy
2: little mistakes, just like Bob Ross would say. <laughs> book three, pages one through 10, uh, starts off again with a DEO. They have raided Leonard Snart's home and finds hints of where the rogues are based off a book on ancient and lost civilizations that director Chase picks up. So this goes ahead and infers what their intentions are. From there, Ape apprehends Cold and takes him to his office where he's interrogating him. But eventually he just gives up knowing that Snart's not going to tell him what he wants. So what do the old friends do? They do what old friends do and they start drinking. And from there,
1: Snart begins to actually explain what he's doing. I love why. I love that scene so much when he got, you know, because he, he's playing the cop and he's, he's doing his job. But at the end of the day, these guys probably have a lot more in common with each other in terms of their own background, um, perhaps you know, and and what they what they're really like in real life. Just a couple of d- guys who have just are at the end of their rope and are in the situations they're sort of in, but they both have one last chance for a little
2: fun on the way out. And was that last chance? Ape is willing to go ahead and help him break into the Gorilla City Bank, but. He has to also promise that he will kill Grodd in the process. So they make a deal. Uh, Pages 11 through 23, we meet Grodd's wife and child, who are the center of his empire of crime. And as Eric mentioned, the brutality of Grodd in the last one, which we see him kill one of his own officers. Now we see a softer, more fatherly side, which draws a pretty creepy contrast. Um, from there, Sam, the ape, tells the rogues how to break into the bank, which they actually do pretty easily and enter the vault of Gorilla Gold. Now, he mentioned that in book gorilla one. Gold they do, now.
1: <laughs> gorilla it's, Gold. He should call himself Gorilla Gold. That would be a pretty, pretty appropriate.
2: Well, it's gold owned by gorillas. It's Gorilla Gold. You go. So... Uh, just like Eric mentioned in book one, they did a really good job at making it feel like a movie montage on paper. They do the same thing here for about 10 pages. They go ahead and really swiftly jump through all the rogues using each of their powers to overpower the uh, guerrilla security guards to eventually get into the gold. And it's a giant two page spread. It is big. So at this point, you're thinking, wow, they got through that pretty easily. Nothing bad can happen from here, right, Mark?
1: Oh, yeah, no. That should be smooth sailing from now on.
2: Well, pages 24 through 30... The rogues escape through the mirror master's mirror world. And this is why mirror master was so important because he's the only one that can calibrate his gun to get them to a safe place in the mirror world. Now the mirror world is basically, that's that's kind of a theme for,
1: for a lot of these characters like Leonard Snart, his whole thing, he just has the cold gun, but for whatever reason, like he's the one that really knows how to use it. It kind of reminds me of pro wrestling when uh, a wrestler will have a finisher. Eric will appreciate this. You know, a wrestler will have a finishing move, uh, whatever it may be. But another wrestler could do that same move, but it's not his finishing move, so it doesn't it doesn't end the match for that wrestler. Uh, essentially, whoever, whatever wrestler holds that move as their finishing move, they know how to do it the best. So that's how I look at Mirror Master Leonard Snart. Uh, they know how to use these weapons the best. It just doesn't work when someone else does it. And it,
2: it's that's really analogy. Uh, And it's really good that you say that because that really plays in Mm -hmm. very, very soon. So mirror master and uh, I'm sorry. So the rogues escape through the mirror masters mirror world of all the gold, but as magenta is lifting it all into the mirror world, her powers basically crush her to death. She has pushed herself too far and she ends up killing herself to secure that the gold is put into the mirror world. At that point, Mirror Master is just like, what the fuck, man? And Snart is just like, whatever, she's dead. We got the gold. We got to go, dude. So they have a face off. And at that point on the outside, as the gorilla cops are surrounding the gorilla bank, um, you know, Sam shows up and he's wondering what's happened. And what one of them, one of the other cops basically says is, yeah, you know, it's good thing that we made some changes because the rogues are never going to know what we installed in case something like this ever happened. So at that point, we know that not only is Magenta dead, which shows that one, that's not good, but. Um, Snart and Mirror Master having a face-off. Meanwhile, they don't even know that the cops have something up their sleeves. Um, from there, page 31 through the end of book three, the guerrilla cops manage to actually break into the bank through their own teleportation system and ambush the rogues who end up back up on the run running for their lives in guerrilla city during that process mirror master is killed so now we are down two rogues magenta crushed by her powers and mirror master who has also died during the during the run from the cops they hide for a moment in a warehouse whereas they look around and this is just so funny how fast things move they discover the true source of grod's criminal empire he is the biggest drug dealer in the world Um, and as there, he wasn't just, he wasn't just running slot machines. This is just, this is just like real life Vegas. Come on. He's gone full Pablo Escobar, complete Pablo Escobar behind
1: every legitimate business is a very illegitimate business. That's much more profitable brought to you by the CIA
2: anyway, um, as they were, that's the one
1: I want to see. I want to see the, the, the sort of else worlds where gorilla garage is recruited as a CIA double agent drug runner, but why don't they hire
2: us to ever write this shit? um called joshua williamson he wow. seems to be the one that gets all Have the gigs make it work as they were escaping during the calamity trickster stole a baby a baby gorilla which he intends to use as an act in his show enraged that he'd kidnap a child lisa strikes the trickster and accidentally cuts his throat killing him instantly Ape shows up and realizes that the baby is Grodd's son. And in that moment, Cole decides to hold the child hostage in exchange for a huge ransom. So in just those nine pages, shit goes from bad to no pun intended ape shit. Eric, this is a lot of stuff happening really fast. Did you anticipate that things would go south this way? And that would end up with Captain Cold wanting to hold Grads son hostage. Meanwhile, Lisa just killed the trickster. No, I didn't
3: so see this coming at all. Now they're down three rogues. I didn't see this coming at all, and I don't think that was an accident that uh, GG killed uh trickster.
2: Mark, do you see Cold as the person that's going to actually hold a baby hostage?
1: I think Captain Cold is in Eric's house right now spraying his, spraying his gun around, <laughs> pretending it's a vacuum. But uh, no, I mean, uh, they they continue to sort of allow the rogues the, just as we're sort of warming up to them, they'll have one of them do something so brutal that we question the morality of the character whatsoever. I, I kind of like golden glider just going off on trickster because it really plays into what we'll learn a little bit more about in the last issue too, is that, you know, they didn't have the best childhood, Leonard and, and his sister. Uh, and she uses that line, uh, you know, tor- towards the end here to sort of you know talk to him about what is he really doing the right thing with, you know, holding this baby captive just because he's Gorilla Grodd's son. Are you going to hold it against him that he's your father? So, But I think that, that the way she reacted to the trickster trying to use the baby here, um, it really shows to her sort of motherly instinct while also reminding us she is a villain. Yes, maybe she didn't quote unquote mean to kill him, but she certainly didn't hold back and is aware of her powers and certainly doesn't feel bad about it either, I, I would say. So uh, even while she's being motherly and protective, you do still get that hint of the sort of brutality uh, that lives within all these characters. Absolutely. And we'll just go ahead and jump into book four. Uh, pages
2: one through five, we find that the DEO has found where Snart and the rogues are, and they're actually traveling to the Caribbean to go to Gorilla City to apprehend the renegade rogues. Um, while that's happening, the guerrilla cops are searching for them as well throughout Guerrilla City, especially once they realize that uh, Grodd's wife has alerted them to the fact that Grodd's baby has been kidnapped. So during this point, pages six through 15, we we enter that period in the warehouse where uh, Leonard and Lisa are basically arguing. And it's like, listen, are you going to abuse this child because dad abused you? So you know, Leonard is really conflicted because without mirror master, they can't get into the mirror dimension without the gold. They can't beat rich without that. He's going back to being a floor manager. And meanwhile, they have Grodd's baby and he knows that Grodd, unlike most of them will just murder them for the hell of it because he knows that unlike him and his friends, Grodd is an A tier villain. He doesn't give a shit. So, uh, ape attempts to actually flee Gorilla City. He, Sam is just like, I'm done with this shit. You people need to get out of here. But Cold doesn't really trust him. Cold thinks that he may have been the one to tip off the cops despite the fact that he didn't. So Sam is just proving that he's just like, you know, I'm out, man. Like, I'm out for myself. As he's about to escape, Cold freezes him to death. And he's like, you're not going anywhere. So at that point, we are down Magenta Mirror Master, Trickster, and now Sam the Ape. The first character whose, whose demise I actually felt bad about. Actually, yeah, you know, I didn't I, see I this coming. Sam. I thought that they would bring him back later, but this is it. Like, this is it for him. Like, say goodbye. After folks. they
1: shared the drink and everything. Yeah.
2: There are no friends among rogues. Uh, Lisa and cold argue about the welfare of the child and cold agrees to let Lisa hold on to him and watch him as a show of good faith that he's not going to harm the child. Meanwhile, he goes over to Heatwave, and him and Mick actually come up with their own plan up to hide this plan up their sleeve for what they're actually going to do when they go and confront Grodd and make a deal for the child. Um, so a lot has happened here. Like this seems like a messy plan, but the fact that um, you know, the child is involved just makes things so much worse. Eric, the fact that now we've gone from the gold is out of the picture. They can't really escape. The DEO is on their trail and they don't even know that. Do you, did you think that at this point Cole could be capable of potentially harming a child? Because now he's gone from like cartoony super friends, villain
3: to I'm willing to like kill this chimp baby. Oh, absolutely. Um, He's backed into a corner um, as are the rest of the rogues. And he's shown that he just he just doesn't care. He wants that money. He wants to get out of his life. Um, he just seems to be willing to do whatever it takes at this point. Yeah, so pages 16 through 22, they
2: go and actually confront Grodd now and his men. And Grodd basically makes a deal with them. He's like, listen, I'm going to kill you all unless Cold can use the Mirror Master's gun to enter the Mirror World and get the gold back. At that point, cold is like no i'm not just gonna do this for you just to walk out with nothing i will freaking kill your son but what does grod do he calls his bluff and even says go ahead do it i'll make another one to which grod's wife is like what the fuck what are you saying so Grod- like I'm past my prime. I just went through menopause. Yeah. Like Grodd. Like, means- I didn't
1: mean with you, bitch.
2: <laughs> Grodd means what he says, but he also basically is like, you know, snark's not going to kill a child. He- he's not that type of bad guy. So taking offense to that cold destroys the mirror master's gun that Grodd hands him showing that now this is an all or nothing plan. Uh, from there, pages 23 through 30, bronze tiger and Lisa are running with the baby away from a group of gorillas and uh, bronze tiger has taken a vow of no longer killing people. So he basically uses his like, you know, black dynamite Kung Fu skills to beat the shit out of all of the gorillas, which is a pretty cool one pager, um, at that point we see that Grodd and cold are fighting and you know, like Grodd is still, he's, he's older, but he still has his gorilla strength Whereas cold just has his cold gun. He's an old man. At this point, he actually manages to freeze one of Grodd's hands and as Grodd hits snart with it. His hand actually bursts apart, blows up as he punches him leaving with one
1: hand. This is probably the most violent part of this book so far. And this is where you start to get the feeling that like, this isn't, this is not about the gold anymore. This is about one last fucking throwdown, run for Leonard Snart going down in the biggest blaze of glory he can find, which in this case is battling a giant
2: gorilla. Which is pretty freaking cool. Which is pretty cool.
1: Yeah. I mean, I'd, I'd love to go down that way.
2: But Captain Cold realizes that this is probably a suicide mission from the start. So what was his plan of Mick? Mick was going around Hiding incendiary bombs all over the place. So he goes ahead and blows up the warehouse, blows up the bank, and sadly he dies in the process. But Mick doesn't really care. He wanted to go down, taking a lot of people out with him. I must say,
3: I must stop you there. This two page spread for this scene is so awesome. Just the reds and the oranges and just the art for these two. They they make you feel in it. It, you really, you really feel part of the story here. And it's, it's just incredible how, how they, how they did this particular. Yeah, And we we, we probably, probably
1: haven't paused enough to appreciate the artwork of Leo Max. Again, awesome name, one word, uh, throughout this, but, uh, the guy's art is it's, it's different, but it's, it's perfect for this story, which is really, I think what always we'll talk about in our grades, but I think what always ends up getting the highest scores for us is when the art isn't just great on its own, but it's perfect for the story.
2: Exactly. So uh, after Mick goes ahead and blows everything up and we get to see the final act of heat wave, Grodd is about to kill cold. They go ahead and you know have this more back and forth about why he was never allowed in the rogues and Captain Cold is like, cause you were never invited. And uh, at that point he goes ahead, pulls out another hidden freeze gun. Grodd thought he destroyed the other and he puts it in his mouth and blows his head off. Freaking killer. If he was a B-lister now, Captain Cold has just gone up in my book so Grodd is dead he's as dead as disco uh from pages 38 through the end cold dies as a result of the fight with Grodd but as he's dying and he's laying down uh, and he's seeing that the gun basically kept going so it looks like snow is falling down he basically is like you know as Mark said this isn't about the money it was about one last score it's about going out as a badass, basically.
1: Well, yeah, and and Golden Glider and uh, Bronze Tiger get assassinated by the the D.E.O. on that. Uh, yeah. Just when you think some people might have a happy ending.
3: Mm.
2: Exactly. So as Lisa uh, returns the baby to Grodd's wife and him and uh, Bronze Tiger, as her and Bronze Tiger are finally fleeing the city, the D.E.O. arrives and just freaking mercs them. They're they're as dead as disco, meaning all the rogues, all of them, have now died. Meanwhile, back at the villains' bar, uh, the villains hold a toast for the rogues in their honor. They've been hearing about what may have gone down in Guerrilla City. It's all rumors at this point The DEO is trying to cover up what happened because they can't admit that they let the rogues run amok and do all this. And uh, we finish with a panel zooming in on the rogues from 10 years ago as they looked at the beginning of book one. And uh, it basically shows that, you know what? They went down as rogues. And uh, that ends the story. Gentlemen, thoughts?
1: Eric,
3: I I was expecting the ending is not what what I expected when we started the story. Um, I thought you know there would be some casualties. I didn't think everyone would die at the end of this story.
2: <laughs> it's very Quentin Tarantino, all of a sudden.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, for how long these books are, it was a shockingly quick read. Very, uh, very well paced um you know as we mentioned at the start the art really carries it um the art you know as mentioned a couple minutes ago uh is spectacular throughout um you know the way they change the colors um and how you know they uh they display the action scenes is just i love it
2: and and i i usually really like well-written dialogue in books and i had to gloss a lot to convince all condense all four in about an hour but like Folks, definitely, absolutely, read this book because the dialogue—it tells you a lot about the characters. At times, it's also really funny. It's really well written. I have not read a comic with such good dialogue in a very long time.
3: Mark, yeah, you? that that shouldn't yeah. be understated. Is the the dialogue is equally as good as the art? This is a fun a fun read, um, and the backstory of the characters and the amount of character building they do is is amazing.
1: Definitely, Mark. Yeah. And what I really liked about the story as well is that pretty much every issue I was surprised by something, usually a few different things. Uh, so it, it, Joshua Williamson, th- I mean, this is, this is probably the best Joshua Williamson story I've ever read. I I've read a lot of his stuff and I think it's generally a pretty decent writer uh, as decent as you can get, but you know, when you when you give a guy eight books a month or whatever he's doing now, you know some are gonna be some are gonna be good and some are gonna be whatever. And so he's he's had a de- decent amount of whatever I've read in the day. Uh, but this is certainly not whatever. This is uh, very much a character driven story. And man, yeah, you're, it's it's like Breaking Bad meets Indiana Jones uh, meets Goodfellas. I mean, it, it's so much, but it's it's more than any of those stories. And I think what I like about this the most might be that they rip away any semblance of a happy ending or, or right when you think, all right, well, at least, you know, golden glider is going to survive the, and you know, when she's going to go off and maybe she'll at least live a nice rest of her life with bronze tiger. Nope. Nope. Actually, we're just going to shoot them. We're going to shoot them right through the chest uh, because at the end of the day, these are all villains. Uh, these are not great people. And as they say on the last, uh, last page there, uh, someone else always paid snarts tab and everybody everyone paid his tab in this story. So this is really the story of a uh, of the what happens when you live a, when you live poor, when you live a bad life, when you make bad decisions, when you do evil and when you do bad. And I like that in the end it didn't really work out well for the villains because even though we want to he- cheer for them in the context of things, yeah, Leonard Snart seems like less of a villain than Gorilla Grodd, for example. So we're rooting for him in that fight. At the end of the day, these are all bad guys. And really, they all kind of do deserve what they get. So it's fitting that they, in the end, really did. And none of them really have a happy ending. Exactly. They didn't forget who
2: these characters were. They knew exactly who they were. So you might as well give them a big bang as they're they're going out. I'm going to go ahead and give my rating so that you guys can argue with me. Uh, Story. And I have not given a score this high in probably two years. I am giving the story a score of a five. This is accessible for new readers. This is a love letter to Flash and DC fans. This is a simple story done right, but with lots of twists and turns. The dialogue is fantastic, and you get to see a full character arc. You get to really see them change uh, primarily through the lens of Captain Cold from book one to book four. This could have been a 12-issue story arc. This could have been many things, but to condense this in probably, you know, like under 160 pages across four books, superb. This is a perfect example of a self-contained story. This is an Elseworld world story done right. Fantastic. One of the best books I've read this year. I'm giving it a five. And the artwork, I have nothing negative to say about it. I love the renderings. I loved the action, the montage, the change in the color schemes. You feel the motion of this book. And that's really hard for a lot of people to do. This was superb. I am giving this a 10 out of 10 complete art and story.
1: Well, Ramzo, so this is one of those ones where I, you know my, my gut instinct is often to just be a contrarian and try to add a little bit of uh, you know, counterpoint to whatever you might lay out, especially when you're so high on something. But when I look at the story, I, and I really have to ask myself when I'm grading something, if I'm trying to find that one critical flaw or whatever it may be to not give it the perfect score, I have to ask myself, what more could I really ask for here? And when I asked that question, there's nothing I can think of. I can't really ask for more from the story. Uh, It was, like you said, it was done perfectly in just about, not in just about, in really every way. Uh, In in the sense that even where I knew it was going, it continued to surprise me. Uh, It continued to endear me to the characters while never making me forget who they are and what they are. And my first introduction, I don't know if I've ever seen something he's done before, Um, but Leo Max's artwork, again, in another story this it might not be a five artwork but in this story it is so I'm just going to stop beating around the bush I I have to agree with you Remzo it's a five on both fronts 10 out of 10 this is awesome Eric you got to bring it home for us be funny he gives it a five <laughs> That, like that, w- that.
2: I, I would like to see if Eric gives anything less than that
3: Um <laughs> So I I I did have a couple of nits nitpicks okay. with the with the book <laughs> Here we go. i did have a couple of nitpicks with the story uh so guerrilla city is supposedly this secret city uh that people don't know about it's in some legendary book nobody goes there awful lot of humans walking around guerrilla city and the rogues had an awful lot of freedom walking around
2: they're like north um, koreans in in western europe you know that they're slaves
3: yeah i just thought i just thought that was a little weird uh but it wasn't enough to take me out of the story. Um I'm fortunately not taking you home. I had this I had this at a four and a half on the story and a four and a half on the art, uh, which puts it at a solid nine for me. But then again, as I've said previous times I've been with you guys, I'm not a professional grader, I'm just an amateur. I don't no, even know how watching. to I don't even know how to pronounce Granilla Gorilla, gorilla <laughs> <grot>. that's true <laughs>
1: Ironically, we're only professional because you're paying us. <laughs> if we remove you from the equation, we're pretty much just like you. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting that you're slightly below us. But I think, like, in the end of the day, we're, we all pretty much agree the story is awesome. So, yeah you know, oh, absolutely. pick as we may. Yeah. Absolutely. So, as far as the official
2: SPC score, this is a 20. This is a must-read. This is a grab it. Put it on your shelf after you read it, of course, and share it with a friend
1: indeed absolutely share it with friends i probably shall this is one uh you know if you're at our uh our uh epic crossover level on patreon 25 bucks a month every three months we send you a hardcover of our choice i I, this is one this is going to be one that's going to be in my in my mind i think in the mix of of books i'm going to want to send people
3: if i can if i can find the right deal of course
1: yeah well that's about it eric
2: thank you so much sir thanks brother great selection
3: Thank you very much. And thanks for having me. Looking forward to, uh, you know, listen to this uh, a little bit later.
1: All right. Well, in that Mark,
3: case,
2: we have not had a t- 20 in a long time,
3: a really long time. Definitely
1: the first in the, uh, what you might call the SBC rebirth era, <laughs> whatever, whatever you want to call this current iteration of the show. It's, it's definitely our, our highest rated uh, since we restarted a few months ago. Yeah. you want to take us home? I do because there's really only one left thing left to say, and it's a request that we always have for our listeners, our friends, our fans, is that you continue to read comics, and what now, my friends, and change, change the, world. the world. Good night, America. Ladies and gentlemen, you are now entering the second Threat comics podcast, starring Mark Claire and Renzo Martinez.